timetable, February 12, 1999, Edwin C. Bars on John Wilkes Booth and his attempted escape. He is considered by many the dean of uh, Civil War historians. Born and raised in a ranch in Montana, when he was born they broke the mold. There hasn't been anyone like him since. He's one of a kind and no one could ever take his place. As a Marine in the Pacific during World War II, he was wounded and while he was recuperating, he spent some time back in Montana. He has some fond recollections of some raucous occasions in some of the wild western towns of Montana such as Billings, Bear Creek, and Red Lodge. But his story career began after he had a BS in his, from Georgetown University and an MA in history from Indiana University. Serving as park as superintendent of Vicksburg Military Park for several years, he is remembered especially for his find of the USS Carroll, its subsequent raising and restoration. This project, of course, resulted in the publication of his book, Hard Luck Ironclad, The Sinking and Salvage of the Carroll. Many of you, I'm sure, have read it. He and his wife, Marjorie, were instrumental in recognizing and establishing related park sites that were a part of the Vicksburg campaign. In 1981, he became chief historian of the National Park Service, and in 83, he was chosen to receive the Department of Interior's Distinguished Service Award. He is recognized for his numerous books that he has published on the Civil War and received the Nevins Freeman Award in 1980. He has generously contributed in his time and efforts to numerous organizations and activities associated with American history, especially our club. A five-time speaker at our club, he has led our battlefield tours since 1961. A brilliant mind, keen intellect, and great humor, he has the ability to communicate and to bring history alive with his unique articulation of the facts in telling the story. Can you imagine, as I do sometimes, when you just close your eyes and you can hear those, the sounds of the guns as here is narrating. And sometimes, if you don't get the point, then he'll provide his own sound effects just to make sure that you really get your, your, your whole spirit into the story. So sit back and enjoy the program. We are indeed fortunate to have our, him as our featured speaker. The title, John Wilkes Booth and his attempted escape. Please welcome Ed Bars. You might not like the talk. You better not applaud so long, especially Marshall Crowley, since he's going to star in the program tonight. He's going to play the part of Boston Corbett. I'm going to now the, uh, the decision. There had been a plot and several plots to kidnap the President of the United States. The last one in which John Wilkes Booth and a number of people were involved was to culminate on the night, on the afternoon of the 17th day of March, 1865, with a kidnapping of the president as he proceeds out from the White House, out to the Camel Hospital in Mount, what is now Mount Pleasant, uh, the District of Columbia. But the president is primarily a, also a politician. And while Booth and his fellow conspirators lie in wait to kidnap the president, the president is a guest and is visiting 
down in front of Booth's Hotel, which is a national hotel in Washington, then located on Pennsylvania Avenue. He's there because of governor, an invitation from Oliver Perry Morton, governor of the state of Indiana, who is there to present him the colors, a large Confederate flag that had been captured by the 140th Indiana flying over Fort Anderson. Many of the, pr the principals in the kidnap plot, of which is being masterminded by John Wilkes Booth, then scatter to various points of the compass. The decision to assassinate the president rather than to kidnap the president originates in Booth's mind. Booth, 27 years old, a son of a distinguished Shakespearean actor who is a, the Booths are correct in one of the books written about him. The mad, the, the mad Booths of Maryland uh, had uh, originated, uh, he is attending when Lincoln is giving a speech on East Lawn of the White House on the 11th day of March. That is two days after Robert E. Lee's army has surrendered. And, in the, and among the crowd assembling there is John Wilkes Booth and Louis Payne, one of the kidnapped conspirators. In the speech, the president makes some remarks about the that he plans in Reconstruction to give the vote to some of the blacks, particularly the blacks who have served in the army. And when Booth uh, makes, when the president makes that statement, Booth turns to Payne and says, that's the last speech he will ever make, probably with a few expertly, expertly deleted. So the plan uh, uh, arriving then in Washington on the evening of the 13th is uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Grant has just returned from Appomattox and it is announced in the paper the next day that the president and his lady and the general and Mrs. Grant will attend the theater on the night of the 14th. Now, uh, now this, it, when this strikes, but when Booth reads of this, he plans uh, the assassination. Now, the assassination as it develops in Booth's mind at this time is they will enter the theater. They do not know at this time whether they're going to be attending the National Theater or Forbes Theater. And the plan is they, Payne or Powell, Powell being his, his name, will enter the presidential box and Booth will assassinate the president and Powell will assassinate Ulysses S. Grant. Well, a hitch will develop. Now, uh, Mrs. Grant and Mrs. Lincoln detest the very ground each walks on. <laughs> the feud had started early in 1864 when there's a boomlet for Grant. Dump Lincoln and nominate Grant. And one day, when Mrs. Grant is in the presence of the room, Mrs. Lincoln walks in and Mrs. Grant does not stand up. And Mrs. Lincoln will snap at her, your husband is not president yet. 
you'll stand in my presence. Unfortunately for the president, following the inauguration, General Grant invites the president to come to City Point and talk about how to wrap up the end of the war. Now, if there had been any other time, if it had been in 64, or any time before Robert Lincoln is assigned to Grant's staff, Mrs. Lincoln would not have gone. Robert had graduated from Harvard. There had been great complaints during the Civil War about Robert's bomb proof up in Harvard. And the president had got him assignment to Grant's staff. So you can imagine the shock in Julia and the general's mind, because the general may be in command of the army, but I think Julia generally commands their household. When the River Queen shows up and aboard it is not only the president, but Mrs. Lincoln. And it's going to be a turbulent two weeks down there, and, but that's not part of my story. You could ha have it in a question and answer, which develops the, the hatred of the two women from each other. So I can just see when the press announces that Lincoln is going to the theater and the Grants with him, and I can just see Mrs. Grant telling him, you may go there yourself, but I will not spend another night uh, with that horrible woman. <laughs> we are going up and visit our children up in Burlington. Now, as John Wilkes Booth is riding down Pennsylvania Avenue on the afternoon of the 14th, he's found by this time they're going to the Forbes Theater to see our, Americans, our American cousin in which Laura Keene is the star. But as he's riding down Pennsylvania Avenue, he sees the Grants in their carriage going to the train, and he watches as they board a train. That means there's going to be a new scenario that night. The new scenario will develop. Uh, at, at about 8.30 in the, after, in the evening, in the room in the Herndon house, at the corner of 9th and F, no longer standing, one block from the Ford Theater. Booth has been in the Ford Theater earlier that day, has drilled a hole through the door, through the door to box seven and eight, left, uh, left a uh, piano uh, uh, band, uh, a uh, prop that would be used to support a musician's uh, music as he plays, and there he will assemble with four people. And he will give them assignments. George Atzerald, who originally in the kidnap plot, he's a sot. He had lived down at Port Tobacco and he was originally to help convey the kidnapped president across the Potomac River. But now he's gonna get a much more dangerous assignment. One, that you would only give to a person that's used to killing people. He is going, he is, uh, Booth has got him a room in the Kirkwood house, one floor above the vice president's office, uh, where the vice president is living. The, price, the vice president has been in purgatory because you know it was a union ticket that was elected that year. He's a Democrat, 
and whether he had, he had not been feeling well on election on inaugural day and had drank too much and had been, if you were a good radical Republican, beastly drunk at the inauguration. If you were not a radical Republican, moderately well uh, in your cups on inauguration day. So after all, it's a knock at the door, and when the vice president answers the door, bang! That's the end of the vice president. Well, since, a, since General Grant is not going to be at the theater, Lewis Powell will draw to assassinate the Secretary of State, Mr. Seward. Now, for the presidential, for the people that like theories, he would not, at that time of the presidential secession, if they killed Lincoln and Johnson, Seward would not have succeeded to the presidency. It would have been uh, a, a wonderful man. That shows they're not thinking very fair, uh, clearly. Because the President of the United States, if they'd been successful in assassinating them both, would have been Ben Wade. And he would have made, he would have made, he, he makes, uh, he would make uh, uh, the most radical of the radical Republicans like, look like something out of the Little Sisters of the Poor. Because he's, he's a tough one. And, and, uh, and Davy Harold, a mama's boy, 22 years old, who knows the roads of the back country of Charles County and Prince George's County that was going to be their guide in the kidnap plot, will go with Powell and will guide Powell to Seward's house. And then after Powell has killed Seward, guide Powell out of the city. Now these assignments are given at, 10, at 9, 8.30 in the evening. So they scatter to carry out their various missions. I'm not going into any detail on what happens, except to say Atzerodt loses his nerve. Very obvious that he is not a person that would stay in the Kirkwood house. He looks like a bum, and he's drunk besides, and will be the key to unlocking who a number of them in the plot are because they were good, wise, like our man here, one of New York, one of Washington's finest, goes up and searches the room on finding out this derelict is living in a hotel, one floor from below the vice president, goes up there and they find Booth's bank book, which check stubs it, which is bad for a number of people, particularly the ones that were in the kidnap plot, but not the murder plot. Powell will assault the, uh, the Secretary of State, seriously wound him. If he had not had a broken shoulder and had a metal brace around it, he would have been dead. He will seriously injure the, the Secretary's two sons, knife the uh, hospital store, and a clerk, but not kill any of them. But while he's in the house knifing these people, Pain and Powell is shouting, I am mad, I am mad. <laughs> this house is once on Madison Place, half a block from the White House. Harold uh, hears the shouting, decides he isn't going to wait for pain. Powell, and rides off. As he rides off on a horse rented from the Fletcher, from the Fletcher livery stable, located in Butcher's Row, 
on Pennsylvania Avenue, one half block from the Republican stronghold in the Willard's Hotel. He turns into Pennsylvania Avenue. And of course, he had checked out his horse from Fletcher's livery stable to be back at 8.30. It'd be the same thing if you have your Hertz car out and it's 10.30 in the evening and you haven't brought it back. The Fletcher sees him riding down the street. Bring back my horse. <laughs> Harold turns into 13th Street, then turns down F. Now as he passes the intersection of F and 10th, there's consternation because some 20 minutes before, Booth has entered box six, seven, and eight, and at a range of six inches, has fired a one-inch ball into the, the president's head behind the right ear, and it transversed the, the head and lodged behind the left eye. The president, by this time, has been carried across the street to the Peterson House, and Booth, after slashing Major Rathbone and leaping from the stage onto the stage, being a popular actor, a man who had an income uh, three or four times the present, he'd be the equivalent of a Tom Cruise this day. Yeah, he will have, uh, he is a ladies' man. When he's killed, he'll have the pictures of five actresses and one senator's daughter on it. The senator's daughter he's reputed, he's engaged to at the time. When he leaps onto the stage, which was his forte, uh, being very athletic and acrobatic, he catches his spur and the treasury flag, lights off balance. Now the tradition is he broke his leg then. But uh, the belief is now becoming, except in the people that don't like the change, that he did <laughs> not break his leg then. The eyewitnesses, when they question him, immediately after, none of them will mention him limping off the stage. Only when it's known that he's broke his leg will they change his statements and have him limping off the stage. Be that matter, he will shake his dripping knife, dripping blood at the audience and shout, Sep, Sepper Tyrannus! The motto of the state of Virginia, thus always to tyrants. And pursued by the superintendent of police, Mr. Richards, he goes out the back door. Now when he had ridden up Baptist Alley, he, as you can see, there's a plan of the theater. He was riding a horse rented from the Pumphrey livery stable. When he rode up there, he had handed the reins of the horse to Edmund Spangler, who he had known since the 1840s, who is a stagehand. He had told Spangler, hold my horse and I'll be back. Booth had then gone down, passed under the stage, come up on the other side, had a good stiff drink of brandy in the Star Saloon uh, before he went in and did his business. Now when he comes to the door, uh, Spangler is not there. Mr. Ford had had something to do, so he'd given the reins of the horse, the mayor I should say, 
Two peanuts burrows. Not a very bright 17-year-old to hold the reins until Booth comes out. So when Booth comes out, he's coming fast. Comes out the back door, and Burroughs doesn't think very fast. He doesn't release the reins, and Booth brings the knife down on the head. But into the knife, and this is another reason I, it's very difficult to believe that Booth could have fractured his leg in the leap of the stage. You only get, anyone's ridden a horse, you only get on a horse on the left side. Horses are, are very sensitive and even Marshall Krolik would not get on a horse on the right side. So that means if he has a broken fibula, he would throw his left leg in the stirrup. And the horse is spooky. And the horse shies. And for a few fractions of a second, Booth has all the weight on his left foot in the stirrup, his right foot up in the, pointing up at about 90 degrees, and his butt out in the air. <laughs> So the booth escape almost ended there. <laughs> but he gets a seat, rides down the alley, turns out in F Street, and heads for Maryland. Now we have three people riding down F Street, heading for Maryland and the 12th Street Bridge, the Anacostia Bridge. At the same time, we have John Wilkes Booth. About five minutes behind him, Davy Harrell. About a minute behind him, Fletcher, the owner of the Fletcher livery state. <laughs> now, if it wasn't tragic, it wouldn't be so funny. So they show up at the Navy Yard Bridge, 11th Street Bridge. Sergeant Silas Cobb is in charge and is a good sergeant of the guard. Here's Booth ride up. He halts him. Now, security has been somewhat relaxed in Washington following Mr. Lincoln's assassination. At dark, yes, you're not supposed to let people out, uh, but they're not enforcing that rule. So Booth rides up to Sergeant Cobb, and Sergeant Cobb's, where are you going? He says, I've got business down in Maryland, and my name is John Wilkes Booth. And I'm en route to Beantown, Maryland. The sergeant says, all right, I'll let you go through, but you will not be allowed to come back in before daylight. <laughs> so off Booth rides. Five minutes later, up rides Davy Harrell. Davy is smarter than Booth. He gives an assumed name. <laughs> and knowing the sergeant, he'll tell him, I've been in town seeing my girlfriend. Her husband is coming home, and I best get out of town. I just see the, I just see the sergeant winking at that, because that incites the sergeant. And the sergeant says, all right, you can go out, but you cannot come back in. <laughs> Soon up rides Fletcher. Did you see the guy on a horse? The scribe's horse. Yes, they got out. My horse. Well, the sergeant says, yes, I'll let you go out but you cannot come back before daybreak. Fletcher says, hell with it. And he goes to report what has happened to the military governor of Washington, Christopher Columbus Auger. They already know there's been the assassin. They know the president is dying, and now they have Fletcher. They, call, they get Sergeant Cobb. Sergeant Cobb, yes. John Wilkes Booth passed through. 
and he's en route to Beantown. So they call in Lieutenant Dana of the 13th Massachusetts Cavalry and tell him to take a score of men and proceed to Beantown. Well, Booth is riding on and Harold will out overtake him on Soper Hill, about eight miles down the road. By this time, Booth's horse has fallen. The brisket is very muddy. And Booth says, I can't control this, this bitch. He's got his, got his animals a little mixed up. Horse is a dog, but he calls it a bitch. So they switch horses. His leg is hurting bad. So their first stop on the escape route, if they kidnapped Lincoln, which had been scrubbed. But the first stop on their escape route on the assassination is going to be at Mrs. Surratt's tavern. Mrs. Surratt, uh, a widow, had leased out her tavern in, January, uh, in December to John Lloyd. Had this, uh, John Lloyd, a retired DC policeman, had the same problem her husband did. He was a lush. <laughs> Mary's husband had died in 1862. So Mary had, Mary had made a big mistake. Booth had rented her a buggy earlier in the day and set her out with Louis Waitman. Now Louis Waitman lived in Mrs. Surratt's boarding house and had gone to St. Mary's College with John Jr. And Louis had, uh, Booth had rented her a buggy and she had driven out to Surrattsville that afternoon to collect a note from a man named Notley. When she arrived there, according to Wakeman and Lloyd, when they're arrested, she had said to Lloyd, have the shooting irons ready when they come. She had given Lloyd a package containing a set of binoculars, and, but she had not gone to see Notley. She had written him a note, and she comes back in with Wakeman driving her back in. Well, they arrive at the Surratt Tavern about a little before midnight. Booth's in a lot of pain. Lloyd, had, after talking to Mrs. Surratt, had gone into Upper Marlboro, the county court, where he'd had few drinks. So of course when Harold gets off his horse, goes up and knocks on the door, knock, knock, knock. It's a while before Lloyd comes. Because Lloyd, of course, you, when you, as Marshall knows, some of the others know if you've had too much to drink, it's sometimes hard to wake up. <laughs> so he comes to the door and says, we want the shooting irons. Booth never gets off the horse. They bring out the two Spencer carbines. These were to be used in the kidnap plot. Booth is in such great pain, they're only going to take one of the Spencers with them. Booth has, uh, has, uh, has Lloyd bring out a good stiff drink of brandy, and they head on. Now, in the kidnap plot, and they, on the 14th of November, at St. Mary's Church, down in Charles County, Booth had been introduced to Samuel Alexander Mudd. 
a local doctor who was in the Confederate Courier Network. He had spent one night at Mudd's house and had bought the horse that Powell will be riding on the fatal night from Squire Gardner, who lives next door to Mudd's. So with a broken leg, he heads for Dr. Mudd's. They arrive there at four o'clock in the morning. Harold goes off, knocks at the door. They wake Dr. Mudd up. Mudd, uh, Harold will say, my friend has horses fallen with him. And I think he has a broken leg. So they will help Dr. They will help Booth off the horse, take him into the first into the parlor, cut the boot off his left leg, and it's apparent that he he has what he has is a simple fracture of the left fibula. They will put a splint on him take him upstairs and give him sedatives, and Mud will have his hired man make Booth a set of crutches. The next day, of course, is the 15th. At 7.22, Stanton can announce, now he belongs to the agents, as Lincoln has passed on. At about noon, Mud decides, I'm going into Bryantown to get the mail. Harold decides to go along and see if he can rent a buggy to take his friend in, who is, announced, who is being introduced as John W. Boyd. Why did they have to use J.W. Boyd? Booth has tattooed on the back of his hands the initials J.W.B. Well, when they get, as they're approaching Bryantown, Harold suddenly sees soldiers in town. He adds two and two and gets four. And he tells Dr. Mudd, I'm going back to see my friend. Mudd goes into town, and in town he learns that the president has been assassinated. And the assassin is John Wilkes Booth. Now, Mudd... Now, uh, the mud story is that Booth showed up with a false beard on. Now, that is one of the questionable things and is debated whether he had a false beard or not. But that's the mud, the mud testimony. So, but Mud now goes home. And he arrives at home. He tells two stories. Now, they do not have the Miranda rule when they question you. <laughs> And Henry Wells is a mean son of a bitch. He'll be the first governor of Virginia under Reconstruction. So he will tell Wells two stories when he's arrested. One, that when he arrives, Mud, uh, Booth, and Harold are leaving on the two rented horses. He will go up and he will berate Booth for placing he and his family in danger. The other story is that he goes in the house and orders him to leave. Now, the problem with, the, I guess, mud in a lot of trouble. He doesn't go to the authorities. They will leave the mud house at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the evening on the 15th. Mud the next day goes to St. Peter's Catholic Church, 
where he sees his cousin, George, and he tells George who's been at his house. George does not go to the authorities till Monday on the 17th. Mudd will say that he's afraid what will happen if he goes. Well, Booth and Harold had left, and Harold knows the country to the west is the Caius Swamp, where the escape route would have been if they had kidnapped the president. He's not familiar with the countryside, the east is the Caius Swamp, a place that's described by everybody as a place fit for only alligators and snakes. Even today, people don't like to go down into the Caius Swamp. So Harold gets lost. And at 10 o'clock at night, they come out east of Zacchaeus Swamp at Oswald Swan's house. Swan is of black Indian and white ancestry. He's a free man. And they'll ride up there, and they'll announce they're lost. Can you find our way to Sam Colonel Samuel Cox? Colonel Samuel Cox is a Kentucky or a Maryland colonel. He ain't no real colonel. He's a gentleman, a large landowner. We'll give you 16 bucks. So Swan will guide them across the Kaya Swamp, and at daybreak on the 16th, Sunday, Palm Sunday, they arrive at the Kaya Swamp. Excuse me, Easter Sunday. At Zacchaeus, uh, they arrive at Colonel Cox's. Now, whether Booth goes in, it's debatable. They'll they will announce who they are and what Booth has done. Harold likes to tell everybody. Harold is a guy that basks in the radiance of Booth. He's a, he'll do anything Booth asks. And Cox says, all right, we'll give you food and I'll arrange to hide you. So he will send his son, Samuel Cox Jr., to guide them down four miles and hide them in a pine wood. So they take them back into the pine wood, about 200 yards from the road, and they pick up their horses, and young Cox goes down to Tom Jones. Now Tom Jones is the Confederate, local Confederate agent. And he'll tell them the problems. Jones is also a foster brother of Colonel Cox. So as it gets dark, Jones shows up. And he says, well, the first thing, he has food and drink and blankets. And he says, the first thing, we're going to have to get rid of your horses. The area is getting full of authorities. We have the 8th Illinois Cavalry. They're not looking very good. <laughs> Down in the area under Major White, friend of Marshall Krolik's. But the, he says, I can, your horses whinnied when mine came up. You can't have this. Of course, they don't own the horses. So he says, we're going to get rid of the horses. So they take the two horses, Pumphreys and Fletcher's, out of the swamp, bang, bang, and the horses are dead. Booth says, he says, stay here and I'll come back when every night. And as soon as the way is clear, I will get you across the river. Booth says, 
Uh, he, Booth particularly requests newspapers. Booth is certain that the Democratic press will hail him because, after all, they've said horrible things about Lincoln. He's been called a dictator, a murderer, and everything else. And he's certain that the press is going to be at least wide statements hailing what he does. Booth is very disappointed. First on the 17th, Monday, 18th, Tuesday, 19th, Wednesday, 20th, Thursday, and 21st Friday. He comes bringing back the papers and they're denouncing him, even the anti-administration papers, as a murderer, an assassin. Booth will write in his journal as he feels sorry for himself. He will say, why every hand turned against me. I struck, I struck for patriotism. Brutus struck for political power in the assassination of Caesar. Gersler in the assassina attempt assassination of Tell was for both persecution and tyranny. Why is every hand turned against me? He'll write in, I think I will go in, I will turn myself in and clear myself. He'll speak of riding 65 miles on the night of the assassination, actually 30. And it's the only time I've ever read of a person having a simple fracture tearing the flesh as he rides along. It's quite melodramatic. But on the night of the 21st, Jones knows, as well as these guys in the 8th New York and 8th Illinois, Booth is worth $100,000 in gold for his capture. That is, in the days when the president got $8,000 a year. So on the 21st, there's been an alert. He's been seen down in St. Mary's County and those clowns from the 8th Illinois Cavalry have gone down into St. Mary's County. And the way across the Potomac River is temporarily open. So they have one horse, Jones's horse. They have Harold and Booth. So it's about five miles to the river. So that means Booth gets to ride the horse with Jones going out in front as he knows the way, Harold bringing up the rear. They go down by Jones's house. Huckleberry still stands. Booth practically cries to go into a house. He hasn't been in a house, and he's not an outdoor man since the night in Dr. Mudd's house on the night of the 14th and the 15th. He is not a person that enjoys camping out <laughs> and roughing it. So they go down, get them a drink, and it's very painful going down on dense meadow because you got a broken leg. That throws you forward when you go down a hill. That throws your weight on your legs. They get down there, and Jones has secreted in a tidal marsh at the mouth of dense meadow a 16-foot boat. He reports. The way is clear. 
Now Booth gets in the stern of the boat as Jones pulls it out of the water, puts his compass in front of him. Harold gets in the bow of the boat with the oars. Jones is ready to push them all. Now Jones knows there's $100,000. Boy, you make $100,000 fast. So Booth says, what do I owe you? Jones says, $16, what I paid for the boat. So they want to, in crossing the Potomac River, they want to drift downstream below Matthias Point. But they're not very good Boy Scouts. <laughs> the tide is coming in, not going out. The Potomac is tidal. And they come ashore eight miles upstream on the Maryland side at the mouth of Nanjimoy Creek, where they knew somebody. That was another place on their kidnap route. They'll spend the night at Paragine Davis's and cast off on the night of the 22nd. This time they're in good luck. They got the tide tying better, and they come ashore in Virginia south of Matthias Point. And they take the boat up Gambo Creek. Daylight. Now they want to reach Mrs. Rose Cuisenberry. Now Rose is a widow. She's an FFV. Her sister is married to the sister of the brother of Prince Interbiti. And she is not happy to hear when Harold shows up and says, my friend John Wilkes Booth and a skiff is in Gambo Creek and we need help. Go, she says, but two Confederate agents, Baden and Harbin are there and they said, well, take care of it. So they go down there and they run into a poor white farmer, William Bryant. They say, Mr. B uh, William, Mr. Bryant, Bryant probably say, Bryant, you don't say Mr. to a poor white. Will you, for $16, will you take them to Richard Stewart's house? Now, Richard Stewart is the wealthiest man in King George County. He's a cousin of Robert Edward Lee. Mrs. Lee and the girls, when they had to leave Arlington, had spent the spring and the summer of 61 at Claydale. Bryant will transfer them there, and they arrive about 5.30 in the evening. There's a party on. Richard Stewart has just been released from Old Chapel Prison. And he is not glad to see John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> Some of, his younger, some of the younger cousins are, but he can see if he's already been in old capital prison where he may end up for giving aid and comfort. So he says, no. Booth pleads for something to eat and drink. He gives him some food and drink, but orders him away. Now Booth is in a bad, bad humor. He's been turned away by a member of the first families of Virginia. Down the road 
is a black family lives. And Booth decides it may be a 12 by 14 room, single room house, but I'm going to spend the night there. So they have Bryant drive him over there, an old Bryant, and they pound on the door. Now whites don't go to black houses in Virginia at that time unless they're real problems. They don't want to let him in, but Booth pushes in the door and they come in with their pistols, present them to the poor black's face and kick he and his wife out of the cabin and they spend the night in the cabin. The next morning, Booth wants their horses and the black says, my son will drive you to Port Conway. So they put him in a wagon, cover him up with hay, it's the 24th, and drive them to Port Conway. At noon, they're at Port Conway. Drop them off. Now Booth's, now the best thing that Booth is going to do for David Stewart is, he writes out a note closing $2.50, thanking him for the hospitality he didn't give. That's the best break the Stuart's going to get. <laughs> Will you get Mr. Thornton to get back over here and get us across? Rollins says, yes, but I'm going to run my fishing traps first. Now, um, three former Mosby Rangers have been mustered out. Lieutenant Mortimer Ruggles, Private Absalom Bainbridge, and Private Willie Jett. While they're waiting for the ferry to show up, Harold just can't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> he calls Willie over. He says, you know who my friend is? He's not John W. Boyd. He's John Wilkes Booth, and he's killed the president. Booth isn't very happy. <laughs> but the Confederates say, well, we'll help you cross. So the soldiers then, finally, Rollins comes back, Thornton brings his ferry boat back, and they ferry him across the river. Now, Willie is from the area. And Willie says, Peyton Randolph. Randolph Peyton's a good Confederate. He'll put you up. So they come up the street into Port Royal, well, he goes up, knocks on the door. Peyton Randolph isn't there, but his sisters, Sarah and Lucy are. Now they have no qualms on taking them in, but what would they say, what will the people say in Port Royal about these two maiden ladies with these two men in the house? So, he says, well, Richard Garrett, the good farmer, got boys in the Confederate Army. I'll take you to Richard Garrett's house. So they ride two and a half miles south, Port Royal, right up to Richard Garrett's house. That uh, Garrett property is in your map there. And Jet will ride up and says, I got two Confederates here. One of them has been wounded. Can he stay here overnight? I'll be back. Richard Garrett says, fine. 
So John Wilkes Booth, J.W. Boyd, wounded Confederate soldier, disabled, goes into the Garrett house. The house faces north, torn down in the 1930s. Two-story frame. Garrett has 10 kids. Jack and Willie aren't back yet. They're in the rebel army. They haven't come back from being paroled yet. So Booth sleeps well that night, sleeps in a bed for the first time since the night of the 14th. Entertains the younger Garrett children the next day. They're not familiar with how the magnetic field so, works. So he uses a knife to play with his compass. Has a good time. And the, four, the herald with the three Confederate soldiers head on for Bowling Green. On the way to Bowling Green, there is a brothel run by Martha Carter. Martha's three daughters are the entertainment. So they stop there and have some fun and proceed on to Bowling Green. Now, Willie has a crush, which is strange to say, where he's just coming from, on Elzora Goldman, the 17-year-old daughter of the owner of the Star Hotel. So Willie and the lieutenant stay at the Star Hotel. Uh, Bainbridge and Harold go to another house. So they spent, so that's where they are on the night of the 24th. But something is happening bad now. On the late on the 23rd, Lafayette Baker, chief of Union Secret Service, a particular venial man, suddenly gets a report. It's old, but it tells on the 16th, two suspicious characters have crossed the Potomac River. So he calls in his nephew, Luther Baker, and Everton Conger, a lieutenant colonel, and the 1st D.C. Cavalry. Conger is on sick leave. He's been badly wounded. He says, get yourself a detail. Of the 16th New York, they're from up, on the, up near Ogdensburg, under Lieutenant Edmund Doherty, Get yourself, you have authority to charter a steamboat, proceed to Belle Plaine on the Potomac near Fredericksburg, and find, check down this lead. Well, on the morning of the 24th, they arrive at Belle Plaine. On the 24th, they spread through King George County, visit every doctor except Richard Stewart. Don't find anything. Well, at noon or about that on the 25th, they ride down to Port Conway. And they start talking to Betsy Rollins. She's the romantic type, like that young lady there. <laughs> and uh, she uh, has, remembers Willie talking about his girlfriend and Elzora Goldman. So she tells Baker, Conger, and Doherty that. Well, and she also says they were accompanied by a man, J.W. Boyd, who is on crutches. 
Now, they got us pinned down. Find Willie Jack. Willie be at the Star Hotel. Two and two says, so they take four ferry trips because the ferry is small to get the 26 men across the river. Riding with them is the most interesting of all the soldiers. I'm looking at his alter ego now. <laughs> this, he was, he was born in England. His name as he came to this country is an immigrant. In 1852 is Thomas Corbett with a wife and two child. His occupation is a hatter. In making hats, beaver hats, you use lots of mercury, hence mad as a hatter. <laughs> he had gone to work in the New England hatter's trade. An epidemic had carried away his wife and two daughters, and he became a derelict, roaming the streets of New England. In Boston one day, here's a street corner evangelist and he is saved and changes his name as he saved in Boston to Boston Corbett. After he's saved, he has somewhat the same trouble as Jimmy Carter, but he punished himself much worse. <laughs> he is tempted by a prostitute, but he does not succumb. He lusts for the prostitute. But to punish himself, he castrates himself. He does not do a vasectomy. He enters the United States Army in Verdant Sharpshooters, is a prisoner at Andersonville, and has just been paroled. So he is the ranking enlisted man. Well, they are now ferried across the river, and they're heading for Bowling. Meanwhile, Jack and Willie Garrett have come back. And they've become very suspicious. Jack also knows, he reads the papers. He knows that John Wilkes Booth is worth $100,000. And they become a little suspicious of John Wilkes Booth. They try to talk army with him. And he doesn't know the army jargon. Also, he is... He is not, his hands are not heavily calloused, and he's not weather-beaten like a man who has served in the army. And they become suspicious. Jack starts musing, what I would, boy, what I could do with that $100,000. <laughs> Booth is getting nervous. Then, meanwhile, Harold has to go back and see his friend. Well, Willie says, I've got it made at the Star Hotel. So coming back on two horses are Jet, oh, excuse me, Bainbridge, Ruggles, and Harold. Three horses, three, two horses, three men. They stop in at the trap again. Visit Martha Carter and her daughters. And then come to the Garrett house. Well. Harold says, I'm dropping off. I'm staying with my friend, and we're going to try and rent a buggy. The two soldiers ride on, and as they get halfway between the Garrett house 
and Front Royal, Port Royal, what do they see? Yankee cavalry. Two and two are added up. They turn their horses back, and they come riding back fast. They call over Harold. Soldiers coming. Harold tells Booth, and Booth and Harold, Booth on his crutches, head off into the boonies. Well, they don't stop at Garrett's. No reason to stop at Garrett's. Well, when they come by the trap, Martha Carter and her daughters hear them coming. Boy, this looks like real business. <laughs> they stop, but they ain't interested in business. Have you seen them? Yes. Harold and two of the, two, three of them will come back through here, but they don't know where they are. So then they head on to the Star Hotel. They arrive at the Star Hotel about 10 o'clock at night. No Miranda rule, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Pounding on the door. Mr. Goldman comes. Will he jet here? Yes. We want him. They pull him out of bed. And they stick a couple of Colt navies in his face. Where is John Wilkes Booth? Well, Willie talks. I said, Willie, you're coming with us. So they handcuff him, put him on a horse. Because they're heading back for Garrett's. Well, they start back. They don't stop at the trap, needless to say. Meanwhile, after supper, Booth and Harold, Booth tries to rent a buggy and a pair of horses. No. The Garretts are now very suspicious. And Mr. Garrett says, you cannot sleep in the house tonight. So Harold and Booth go, across, go about 50 yards. West of the house is a tobacco barn. Virginia tobacco barns have interstices in them, but it's not being used as a tobacco barn. It's being used as a storehouse. So Booth and Harold go in there. Jack and Willie camp out in a corn crib. And after they've gone in, Jack drops the pin down in the door to latch it. Well, the soldiers arrive back about four in the morning. Conger gets off his horse on his crutches, and Baker and Doherty go up, pound on Garrett's door. Garrett answers in his nightshirt. Where is John Wilkes Booth? Now, Mr. Garrett, when he's in excited, stutters, and he starts stuttering. And they take this as uncooperation. So, a little more like you ought to use, they go out in the yard, throw a rope across the limb of a tree. <laughs> Put the rope around Mr. Garrett's neck and lift him off the ground. Of course, that only exacerbates his problem with stuttering. <laughs> now Jack wakes, Jack has woke up and he comes over and he says, they're in the, they're in the, we've got them in the tobacco barn. All right, so now they cuff Mr. Garrett and Willie Jett and they're both sitting on the tree in shackles. Now they go across. Jack, you go wake him up as a soldier surrounded. Jack goes and says, come out, you're surrounded. 
and pulls the latch on the door. A lot of Booth wakes up with a lot of profanity, denouncing the Garretts. Come out. We've got you surrounded. No, we're going to fight. Then Davy says, I want to surrender. Booth denounces him. And expertly deleted, calls him a coward, threatens to shoot him, and all right, he says, all right, he's coming out. So Davy Harrell comes out. He is then cuffed. Jack Garrett is now cuffed, so they got four of them cuffed under the tree. Now Booth and Booth surrounded. Now Booth says, I want to come, I'll come out and fight you one at a time. <laughs> An actor and dramatic to the end. No. So while they're conversing, Everton Conger goes around to the back of the barn, lights some faggots, shoves them through the interstices into some mattresses, and the flames leap up. Now the orders from Stanton are both alive, not dead. Now on the side of the house, looking through one of the interstices, is our hero, Boston Corbett. As he looks through the flames, they can see Booth on crutches. The Spencer in one hand as he starts toward the door. He drops one crutch, hops, drops the other crutch, hops, and then bang, Boston Corbett has shot. They run in and they pull Booth out. The bullet is pierced through the left, right, in the left side of the neck and emerged in the other. It's paralyzed him from the shoulders down. They drag him out of the barn, bring him over and put him on a pallet on the porch of the Garrett house. And poor Boston Corbett is now shackled too because they think they're in deep trouble with Mr. Stanton. <laughs> well, Booth uh, can't raise his hands. He's very thirsty. Uh, they'll wet his lips. They'll send him to uh, front, uh, Port Royal for Dr. Urquhart to get him to come out and look at him. And finally, about 7 o'clock, 7 a.m., now Lincoln died at 7.22 on the 15th. Booth is going to die a little after 7 a.m. on the 26th. His last actions are he asks them to put his hands, move his hands up where he can see them, and he looks at his hands, and he says, useless, useless, and expires. About that time, Dr. Urquhart arrives, pronounces him dead. Now they got some big trouble. Yes, we've got $100,000, but what is Edwin McMaster Stanton going to do? So the first thing they do, they take the handsomest actor in America, who is no longer as handsome as he was, <laughs> put him in a sack, and put him, flip him over a horse's back. And they have taken with them in shackles, Boston Corbett, Jack Garrett, Willie Jett, David Harold, and Baker and Con Conger go on ahead, because they're sure it's going to be a rocket going off. They arrive 
in Mr. Stanton's office late on the afternoon of the 26th. And they will go in, explain what has happened, and Stanton does not go into orbit. Booth's body is then sent to the Navy Yard, sent aboard a monitor where they will have an autopsy on him. A gal, these ladies, he has lady female admirers. Well, when he's killed, as I say, he has five pictures on him, four actresses, one senator's daughter, Cart DeVee, he's a ladies' man. Lady comes in and snaps a lock of hair off. They'll take it away from her, kick her off. Then the orders are, they have the autopsy. Is it Booth? Well, he's no longer the handsomest man in America. Yeah, because uh, of his outdoors and uh, the, the way the blood is, he's considerably darker than he would be if you saw him on the stage. But they look at him, the dentist comes in, examines his teeth, and Booth had a bad scar on his neck. He has JWB on his hand, and he has this bad scar, which had been a polynoidal cyst that had been removed and had broken open again when he was having a very violent love scene on the stage with Pauline Cushman. Well, they decide, well, we don't want him venerating him by clipping hair. So he's ordered to be buried secretly. So they'll take the body, take it down in a rowboat, row down by Fort McNair, land him, put him in a box that you ship rifles in. Now Booth is about five foot eight, so they have to do him a little compressing <laughs> in getting him in the box. They take him down in the basement, take up the bricks, the hairy bone pattern, dig a pit, and cover him up. Now, the trial is going to be, it's not going to be an O.J. Simpson trial, I'll promise you. <laughs> they will have arrested about 60 people now, if it had been in Germany or a number of countries, every one of them and their relatives would have been executed. Now, the government is going to be rather modest. They decide they're going to put eight on trial. They would put nine on trial. But John Jr. had escaped to England, then to the Vatican, and finally to Alexandria. The trial will open on the 1st of May. And the eight to be tried will be tried before a military court of 12 men, of whom three are excused. Among the ones being excused will be Captain Comstock. And among the judges will be one of Marshall's favorites of the 8th Illinois, Colonel Clendenning. Well, the trial will, uh, will be over on June 30th. And the, the, of the eight on trial, four of them will get the death penalty. Lewis Powell, John Atzeralt, Davy Harold, and Mrs. Surratt. Mrs. Surratt, of course, is found guilty and sentenced to death 5-4. Then by 5-4, it's recommended that the president review it, looking toward possible commutation of her sentence. 
Mud will escape execution by one vote, 5-4, life. Two people we haven't even mentioned since they were involved in a kidnap plot and were far removed at this time, Arnold and O'Laughlin will get life. Spangler the stagehand gets six years. Now the sentence is on June 30th, the day that they'll be launched into glory. The execution is going to be quite rapid. Eighth day of July. Now, on the eighth day of July, the man in charge of the hanging is going to be Winfield Scott Hancock. Now, everybody is pretty sure that Mrs. Surratt is going to get her sentence commuted. Now, someone lies. We, it's got to either be Judge Holt, who is Judge Advocate of the General of the Army, one of the three prosecutors, and the Army's legal authority. Now, he is going to say he presented the documents to the President of the United States. Now, we know presidents don't lie. <laughs> I don't know why that always gets a laugh. The president said he didn't. So someone is lying, either the judge advocate, General Holt, or the president. But they're so sure Hancock and uh, are so sure Mrs. Surratt is going to be reprieved that if you, there's a wonderful series of the hangings. They're very kind to Mrs. Surratt. They tie her skirt down to make sure it won't fly up if she's dropped. But when Christian Rath's in the hanging, he's that gentleman in the, in the straw hat in the pictures of the hanging and the long linen duster. Well, everything is traditional in hanging. 13 steps, seven knots. Rath is so sure they're going to reprieve Mrs. Surratt that he only puts five knots rather than seven on Mrs. Surratt. Well, he delays it for about 15 minutes. And then the word never arrives. He nods. General Hartramp claps his hands. The soldiers swing the sledges. And the four are dropped. Uh, Powell lives about, at least, shows signs of life for about 20 minutes. Five knots or seven knots made no difference on Mrs. Surratt. She died instantly. The four of, the, the four of them are buried secretly alongside Booth. The other four are sent to dry Tortugas in the summer of 1867. Yellow Jack visits dry Tortugas, the post commander, the two sergeants, a number of soldiers, a number of prisoners, including O'Laughlin, die. Mud will uh, take charge of combating and caring for the yellow fever victims. In the last week of his administration, President uh, Johnson commutes the sentences of the three still on Fort Jefferson. Arnold, Spangler, and Mud. He also turns the bodies of Booth, 
and the four conspirators over to their families for interment. The Booths are, have to promise that they will bury him in the Booth family lot, but they will not put an individual stone up for Booth. John Surratt will be returned and tried in 1867 in a civil court. It will end up in a hung jury. The decision will be not to try John Jr. again, and he gets to live till 1916. Now, John Jr. undoubtedly could have saved his mother if he had returned before she was executed, but he didn't. So that is the story of John Wilkes Booth, his attempted escape, and his end, as long with the fate of the other conspirators. Thank you for your attention. I will take some questions, and you may want to know about uh, Boston Corbett there. Yeah, I'd like for you to talk about the uh, larger conspiracy theories. About All right, that's going to go on a long time. There, there are a number of conspiracies. The first theory is the Confederate government and their made co-conspirators in the trial. Now, in the trial, the co-conspirators theory breaks down rapidly because they try to... Uh, base it on testimony of people easily proved to be perjurers. So you throw that out. Then along comes about 1930s. One of your, one of your original, one of your early, I don't know if he's one of your founding fathers or one, uh, or joins soon afterward is Otto Eisenschimmel. Now he comes up with a theory that they, the plot, the man behind the plot is Edwin McMaster Stanton. Why didn't he go into orbit when he found Booth had been killed? Why, what are in those missing pages out of Booth's journal, memorandum book? And he becomes the focus. That generally breaks down. Then uh, uh, a, they did a television documentary in the 19. 80s that had there was a John W. Boyd and John W. Boyd did exist again that was uh, the Civil War Times Illustrated came out with an article uh, calling them uh, throwing down the gauntlet on libel and they didn't sue now the new one the, now it's back to the Confederate government Yes, I think they ha the Confederate government knew and was, was abetting the, uh, the kidnap plot, but not the assassination. Because the assassination plot uh, germinates in uh, too short a period for any Confederate government to be involved. And the actual uh, targets, as finally set out, were two and a half hours before Lincoln was shot. So it's gone, a full, it's gone full circle. Yes, sir? What's that? With respect to uh, Booth's motivation, yeah. would you uh, share additional thoughts, please? With, uh, All right, Booth's... With Booth's respect an... to his statement from the uh, stage for theater, thus be the tyrants. All right, Booth, 
Booth, the Booth family, as I say, uh, have two, two sentiments run in the Booth family. There's a strong uh, number, of, there's a strong tendency of, to insanity, and there's a strong tendency to, uh, to looking against tyranny. To, from the time of one of Booth's, uh, John Wilkes, a maternal uh, uh, ancestor of Booth's, uh, was Lord Mayor of London, and he was very supportive of the colonies. Uh, and the uh, Ford will say, 13 years after, John Ford will say, what was the reason for the assassination? He says, one word, Brutus, Brutus, Brutus. Now the Booth, uh, when the Civil War broke out, Booth was, very, was much more popular in the southern stage than he was in northern. Uh, he, but he didn't want to join the Confederate Army because he promised his mother he would not take lies. And he was also very vain of his physical appearance. He was also had been deeply moved when he saw John Brown he had volunteered to join the Richmond Blues, and he'd stood there when Brown was launched to into eternity. While he, he deprecated everything that Brown stood for, but he admired the way Brown died. Now, since, he is, since the Booths are so immersed in Shakespeare's tragedies, the uh, Booth's uh, father was Junius Brutus. His brother was a Junius Brutus. So they, he looked at himself and in his musings as, as removing a tyrant. He is of the opinion he has killed the greatest tyrant of all time in Abraham Lincoln. In November of 1864, the three booths play together. The only time the three actors are on the stage. Wonderful picture in their toes. John Wilkes Booth may be handsome of face, but he doesn't have very handsome legs. <laughs> of course, in Anthony and Cleopatra, he draws Mark Anthony. He doesn't get to be Brutus or Cassius, which is two brothers. So he, he, there, there's this feeling in the Booth family of uh, striking against tyranny. And of course, he, he wanted to do, he was, was a smuggler for the Confederates, uh, but then with the Confederacy going down, uh, he wanted to strike a blow. Now the blow was to kidnap the president. While, how would you kidnap a six foot four man from a stage or from his buggy in public and spare him across the uh, uh, Potomac River uh, without killing him uh, well, is something of, that boggles the mind. Now, what they wanted to do is kidnap the president, take him to Richmond, and hold him hostage for the release of the Confederate prisoners. Now, that is what they're planning to do. But with Richmond falling, the whole world that Booth has seen collapsing around him, he decides to strike a blow. And figuring he, he'd been mesmerized. You had some newspapers here in Chicago that, would, would, that he thought would probably hail him as a hero in, uh, for what he's done. So uh, he, uh, and the, uh, illustrative again, on the night of the assassination, he goes into the Star Saloon, 
next door to the Ford Theater. If you've been in Washington, it's now the ticket office. And he pulled in good stuff. He bought a bottle of brandy, poured himself a brandy, bought the whole bottle and left it on there. And there was a bar fly there. And he says to Booth, you'll never be the actor your brother and your father were. And Booth says to him, when I leave here tonight, I'll be the most famous man in America. Yes. I have a three-parter which I would like to preface with thanking Marshall for coming tonight because I've never been in an audience of yours. Ed would know it's not a view before. So, uh, <laughs> thank you, Marshall. <laughs> my my three-parter is, and, and you address this in, your, in, in part in your first response to a question. One, was Lincoln key to the Union victory? Two, if whether if you, if you think so, were people like Jefferson Davis and, and uh, Judith Benjamin smart enough to figure out that he was key to the Union victory? And three, thinking of the mentality of, of the world, of the mindset in 1860, the 1860s, was Lincoln fair game to be not only kidnapped but also assassinated? Address the last one first. In Western nations of that time, there was a strong moral feeling that we would not have today of assassination uh, in Western. I'm not speaking in Greeks or Roman time, but in, in the times of, uh, of, the seventh, of the 18th and 19th century, there's a strong moral aversion to assassinating leaders. So there would be that feeling uh, against the assassination of leaders. But then, you've got, all of a sudden, you've got the dog and Kilpatrick Ray. And you can argue all the time whether Dahlgren's orders are legit or not, or if the president and staff knew about it. But I'm sure Davis and the Confederate government thought that someone high up in the government knew the Confederates were that the Union was going to play that game on the Dahlgren Kilpatrick raid when Dahlgren, Dahlgren, of course, has this message which he reads to his troops. And yes, it's blotted, but uh, they put it through some pretty good FBI uh, examinations that it appears to be uh, the original, of course, has been lost, but that paper copy that they're to enter Washington, Richmond, as you know, release the prisoners and assassinate the government leaders. So there's that, 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 that scheme is has already been surfaced once by the Yankees. So, yes, I th and also, yes, I think Lincoln is key to uh, the Union winning the war, uh, and winning the war on, a, and also perhaps, which we'll never know, on winning the peace, the Union, uh, which of course failed when Lincoln is assassinated. And we can argue all the time whether Lincoln could have stood up against the radicals or not. Uh, so you think, uh, I think Lincoln is vital to removing him. Uh, I think if they kidnapped him, I don't think it would have done the Confederates any good. I, think that you, I don't think they would have gone along with the exchange. They would simply function through the vice president. But, I, but it's, it can lead to all sorts of speculation. Why did they prosecute obviously a stooge like Spangler and yet not prosecute the other people. All right, the, the, the selection of who to be prosecuted is rather strange. Why do they not go after Tom Jones? Tom Jones is the most instrumental in getting him out of Maryland and into Virginia. 
Why do they go after poor Mrs. Surratt? Now, Mrs. Surratt, I think uh, first, you, what, what, what Wakeman and uh, Lloyd are talking, they're saving their own necks. Uh, what she could have heard or didn't hear in her boarding house. I think, uh, I, I also think that there's a strong tinge of know-nothingism and who they decide to go after. They uh, strongly go after Mrs. Surratt as a Catholic, uh, Mudd is a Catholic. So those are two of the peripheral ones. Now, Spangler, I think he, he only got six years, but again, many of these other people were far more involved than Spangler. I think Spangler somewhat is unfortunate. He's, uh, he's not an attractive personality. He's not a suave uh, or, a, or a soldier or somebody. He's, he's kind of at the dead end of society. But I think uh, there is definitely a, a tinge of know-nothingism on going after the two Catholics as hard as he did. Why didn't they go after the other? Huh? Why don't they prosecute Jones? Jones? He evidently had friends somewhere. <laughs> Why didn't that's why they, that, that's the crux of the Eisenschimmel thesis, is that he does not get upset, therefore he's involved. But uh, I think he probably, he probably thought there was enough bloodshed, bloodshed already. And uh, he doesn't really choose to game, because the gamemanship they always play on the secession. They forget that the secession to the president that same was to the president pro tem of the Senate. Yes, Ed, I'd like to know when you were growing up on your grandfather's farm in Montana. Branch, not a farm. Branch. See what is it? Uh, uh, let's see, Clifton. It's not Clifton. It's something like that. Clinton. What? It's Clinton. 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 At, at that time, the towns took the name of the postmaster. Uh, it should have already been changing to Surrattsville because uh, the Surratts lost the post office because they were Democrats in 1862. <laughs> uh, but it's Clinton now. What's your best guess as to when Fluke broke his leg? My guess is somewhere between the, uh, his, somewhere after he crosses the Anacostia River and when Harold overtakes him on Soper's Hill, which is out by Andrew's field. Because uh, I, I, when they first came up with that, I really didn't, uh, buy into it too much, except on having ridden horses a lot. But then, they, they, with, the, with computers, you can you maneuver evidence a lot easier, and they've gone through the testimony of these people, and their initial stories are no limping. No one mentions limping off the stage until it's known that he broke his leg. 
And even people that uh, said he didn't limp then changed their testimony. Hasn't Mudd Ransom been involved in some type of legislation? Or Are, what, uh, what Dr. Mudd is, uh, and he may succeed. Now, it's not to say that Booth, uh, that uh, his grandfather is guilty or innocent. It's on a procedural matter, whether the military court had authority to try. Now, the military court, now, the, they rule that uh, Judge Speed, who is attorney general, rules that the military court uh, authority derives because Lincoln is commander in chief. They've assassinated the commander in chief. Now, Judge Bates, who had been the attorney general, said uh, Speed is all wet. Even at that time, they were debating on it. But it, but it hangs on a procedure matter. So where do you come with the, the mud thesis? Do you think he was? I think mud, all right, I think uh, the mud thesis. Mud definitely knows who Booth is, and he should have admitted it right off. Uh, mud, Booth spent one day in the mud house. He bought the one-eyed horse from Squire Gardner, who lived next door to Mud. Now, Mud introduced Booth to John Surratt. On the 23rd day of, of December, uh, Booth and Mud are in, are walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, and Mud introduces Booth to John Surratt. And they go up into Booth's hotel room at the National Hotel and drink brandy punches. Then he then there then they met again along in January. So he, had, he met with Booth three times. I think he knows about the kidnap plot, uh, or at least knows there's something involved there. Uh, but I, he, knew, he did not know that Booth planned to shoot the president. Uh, he probably, his mistake is not going to the authority immediately when he knows the suspicious character is in his house. Uh, he waits till the next day to tell his cousin. And his cousin waits another 24 hours before going to the authorities. So I think he, he's, uh, he, he is scared at the wrong time. <laughs> Why did Corbett shoot? Uh, Corbett being a train, his thought is he's a trained soldier and he saw Booth moving toward the door with a deadly weapon in his hand and fired.